Hey, I'm, uh, I'm so honored to be up here to invite you to pull out your Bible and open to the Gospel of Luke. We're taking a deep dive into the Gospel of Luke, aren't we, River West Church? We're slowing down. We're reading through the Gospel verse by verse because in our church, we love Jesus and we want to learn as much about Jesus as we possibly can. And that's what Luke wants to do. He wants to show us Jesus Christ. And so get your Bible out. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. Ushers are coming down the aisles right now. And you're going to want your own Bible in your own hand because this morning we finally get to listen in to the words of the hero of our story. That's right. Today we listen in for the very first time to the first recorded words of Jesus Christ. It happens a little bit earlier in Luke's gospel. Luke lets us listen in to the words of Christ earlier on in his life than any other gospel writer. It's one of the things that sets Luke apart from the other gospels. All the other gospel writers wait until Jesus is an adult for you to listen in, but not Luke. Luke goes back to the beginning. Luke wants to take us back to 12-year-old Jesus. Luke says, if you're going to really see everything I need you to see about Jesus Christ, I need to get you inside the mind of 12-year-old Jesus. And so I titled my sermon, What Was 12-Year-Old Jesus Thinking Anyway, right? This week, a man from our church, I was praying with a man from our church who came to seek counsel. We were praying for his relationship with his junior high son, and which is a really wise thing to do, brothers. When you need wisdom, come pray with a pastor for that. And we were praying together and, and we were talking about Luke. And I was like, you know, Luke is the only gospel writer who shows us junior high aged Jesus. And he gets us inside the mind of junior high is Jesus. And, and this guy said, let me assure you something. The last place on earth that you want to be is inside the mind of a 12-year-old boy. I can assure you this, all right? But Luke says, no, 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 no. You're never going to understand. You're never going to understand what I need you to know about Jesus unless you go there. What was he thinking? What was he talking about? How did he develop? We're going to look at that this morning. We look at it with me. The text we're at is uh, Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 40. And uh, here's how this is going to go today. Luke 2, starting in verse 40. Here's what we're going to do. We're gonna, first, we're going to do a deep dive into the story. We're going to let the story do its work on us. The second thing we're going to do is that I am going to force you to wrestle with the single greatest mystery of the Christian faith. Okay? And then the third thing I'm going to do is I'm going to give you three practical things that you can do in your life. That's how it goes. But first, we're going we're gonna to enter in the story. We want the story to have its way in our lives, right? That's what Luke's doing. He wants to shape our hearts, shape our minds, and he does it through the power of the story. So we look at it with me, Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 40. We left off last week with Jesus and his family. Jesus was an infant, and they were in Jerusalem for a dedication to present Jesus in the temple. And then in verse 39, the family returns back to their home in Galilee, and we pick up in verse 40. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom. 
And the favor of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. Put your finger there and let me just stop and tell you what's going on here. This is a story about a family trip. Jesus and his family take a trip to Jerusalem together. And Luke wants us to notice a couple of details. First of all, he wants us to notice that the family made this trip every year to celebrate a feast that was a regular feast in the life of the people of Israel. It was the feast of Passover. And that detail is going to become important in just a minute. Let me just tell you briefly that Passover was the point when the people of Israel would celebrate that moment in the history of their nation when God delivered them out of slavery to Egypt. And the second thing that Luke wants us to notice is that Jesus is 12 years old when his family takes him to Jerusalem to celebrate this feast. And in the nation of Israel, 12 years old was, was right before a young Jewish boy would enter into manhood. At 13, a young Jewish boy became a man and became a full member of the synagogue. This was like a critical moment in the life of childhood Jesus. And the family takes a trip to Jerusalem together. Here's what happened. When the feast was ended, I read this already, but look at it again. Verse 43, Jesus The boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. Now, at this point in the story, every parent is going, I know exactly what this is. If there's a universal experience of parenthood, it's you lose your children at some point. Am I right? Amen. And why is it that it always seems to happen at Disneyland? I don't know. (laughs) And even if you're not a parent, you got lost at Disneyland. I know. I know. We lost both of our daughters at Disneyland. All right. I don't know why we did it. We were the worst parents. I don't know why Bridget still likes Disneyland because when she was six, I convinced her that the Tower of Terror would not scare her. Okay, not one of my better moments as a father. All right. And then we lost her in Disneyland. So I don't know why she wants to go back. And in this story, Joseph and Mary not only lose Jesus, they leave Jerusalem and travel for an entire day before they figure out that they've lost him. Now, the reader's going, how is that possible? Well, here's how it would work. Typically, your, your whole extended family would go on this journey together. So usually you would travel in groups of 50 plus And on the return tip, sometimes scholars have noted that sometimes the women would start out a little bit earlier and then the men would leave and because they could walk a little bit faster, they would catch up to the women and they would meet at a predetermined campsite. So it's very possible that Joseph rolls in and Mary says to him, Joseph, where's Jesus? And Joseph says what every father says, I thought he was with you, right? (laughs) And then the fight happens, right? And you start blaming each other because that always helps in situations like this, right? And this happened, this happened. But what's so fascinating about this story is that even though Joseph and Mary lose Jesus, Jesus did not feel lost. In fact, Luke actually points out that Jesus intentionally stayed behind 
Did you see that? Why would he do that? Let's find out. Verse 46. So after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. That word is really strong in the Greek. It's, it would be better to say they were, they were flabbergasted. It's that feeling that you have when all of those emotions all flood together at the same time, shock and trauma, a little bit of anger, fear, and a tiny little bit of like relief. That's what they felt. Ah, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? There it is. The very first recorded words of Jesus. Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I would be where my father is? Wow. Just think about that for a minute. We read on, and they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. Amen. I love that little sentence. Children in the room, just note that little word right there. What would Jesus do? WWJD. Okay. Anyway, <laughs> moving on, if you're young. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Now listen up, River West. Here's the thing you need to know. Whenever you're reading the Bible, you should always ask this one question first. You should always ask the question, why? Why is the author including this story or this paragraph? Why is Luke including this story about 12-year-old Jesus? What is he wanting us to see in this moment? Because none of the other gospel writers include a story from Jesus' childhood, but Luke does. And we know that every single word that Luke added to his gospel is there for a reason. He was very meticulous. Luke was a surgeon. Every sentence serves a purpose. What was his purpose? What is the purpose of getting the reader inside of the mind and inside of the heart of 12-year-old Jesus? In order to answer that question, I need to show you something about the way that Luke structures this story. You may have noticed that the story begins and ends with essentially the same statement. Did you notice that? Verse 40 and verse 52, you'll see in your Bible. I'm also going to put them on the screen so you can see how similar they are. Verse 40 and verse 52 read almost identical. Verse 40, 
begins the story when Luke says, and the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. And then the story ends with a similar sentence, and Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. It's called an inclusio, and all it means is you have bookends that are the same, and then in the middle there is a story, and that story highlights the theme that you are introduced to in the bookends. And what is the theme? The theme is this. Jesus grew. He grew up. He increased in stature. Jesus developed as a human being. Amazing. And then what Luke does is he drops a story down in between those two sentences and that theme. And the purpose of this story is to lift up the most critical moment from Luke's standpoint of how that Happened. What was the critical moment where Jesus experienced this, this development of, of who he was as a young man, turning 12 to 13 and beginning to understand who he was, increasing in wisdom and knowledge, growing up? What was the story? Luke says, I need to take you into the temple when Jesus stayed behind and totally freaked out his parents. <laughs> and his parents find him and what does Jesus say in that moment? He says a statement about his identity. Luke says, what you need to realize is that in that moment, Jesus was beginning to understand who he really was. The first words that are recorded of Jesus Christ were, was a statement about himself, about his own identity. As Jesus was about to turn 13 and enter into full manhood, he begins to transfer his sense of identity from his human parents to his heavenly father. And so he says to his parents, why were you looking for me? Did you not know where I would be? That I would be with my, my, my father? Now, let me ask you to do something. Just try to imagine for a moment what it felt like for Joseph and Mary to hear that. Okay? What would that have felt like? Can you imagine Joseph hearing his 12-year-old son say, why are you looking for me? Did you not know I would be in my father's house? And Joseph going, what? Maybe a tiny little sense of hurt. A tiny little sense of, oh, Mary too. Something's happening here. Jesus, beginning to come to an understanding of who he really is. He's increasing in wisdom. He's starting to figure out who he really is and what his purpose is in this life. And he makes the statement about his true identity, even though he knows that that statement will probably create a little bit of hurt in the lives of the people that he loves the most. But he has to do it in order to accomplish his mission. Amazing. Amazing. Luke says, you got to see this. If you do not see this, you will not know how to follow Christ in your life. We're going to learn things about what you and I are supposed to do in our lives as followers of Jesus. Luke says, I got to get you inside of the head of 12-year-old Jesus. Now, my question when I was studying this passage was, how did this happen for Jesus? What 
happen? And I think the answer lies in this little situation where Joseph and Mary find Jesus in the temple sitting among the teachers. Did you see that? Look in your Bible at verse 46. This is where they find him. Jesus stayed behind and he was sitting among the teachers. It was very common after the Passover for scribes and teachers of the law to stay and go out onto the porticos, which were like the outside of the temple area, and they would teach. They would often go back and reflect on the meaning of the Passover, and they would open the scriptures, and Jesus' parents find Jesus there with the teachers. And in this day and age, education happened through a process of question and answer. So today we teach people by telling them what, what is true, and then they have to report it back to us on a test, right? But uh, not, not a jab at public education, kind of. But anyway, this time it was, it was very, very dialogue-based question and answer. You would discover and problem solve. Jesus is there with these teachers, and he's learning. And I've seen artistic renderings of, of this moment. Maybe you've seen them in art or in children's storybooks, and usually it's like, it's like Jesus is standing and he looks very stately. He's young, but he's stately and he's got like two fingers up. There's always two fingers, have you noticed that? And there's like a halo and he's teaching and he's Caucasian, which is also inaccurate. But anyway, and, that, and, and the, the problem with that is it's usually Jesus instructing the scribes, but here's the problem. That is not what Luke describes at all. Luke intentionally describes Jesus seated, and what's he doing? This is where you always go back to your own Bible, verse 46. Look at your own Bible. Jesus is asking questions, and he's listening. He's listening. He's learning. Jesus, the Son of the living God, is learning. Let me just pause for just a second to let that set in. There's so much to unpack here. But let me first say, so to discover Jesus in this setting tells us that he's devoted to learning. First of all, learning is a godly and good thing to do in the Christian life because our savior and our leader was modeling it. He was asking questions. He was inquisitive. He wanted to know the will of God. He was seeking truth. Wonderful. I talk to Christian people all the time who are intimidated about how little they know about the Bible. You felt that, right? You're around other Christians and you're like, man, they, need, they seem to know so much about the Bible and I feel like I'm so new to this. And, I don't know anything about Christianity and it can feel intimidating and you want to give up. And I think one of the things Luke wants to do is to say, hey, don't worry about that. Do you know that Jesus experienced that feeling of needing to know something? He, know, he knows what's that, what that's like. You can take heart that your leader experienced what it was like to learn and grow and be inquisitive. And so can you. Don't give up. Study, read your Bible, come to church, become inquisitive, follow the example of Jesus, All right? So great. When Joseph and Mary found their son, he was absorbed in this discussion 
with these teachers, the scriptures were open and he was trying to understand the will of God. And I think that what happened to Jesus in that moment is that as the scribes and the teachers were looking back on the Passover and all of the meaning of the history of Israel, Jesus was, 12-year-old Jesus, was thinking and starting to connect the dots and go, up a, a, a lamb who's sacrificed and, and, and his blood is spread over the doorway and, and God passes over his judgment. And God redeems his people out of slavery. There's this story of redemption. And as a part of that story, God begins to make promises that there will come a day when a new king will come, a Messiah, but he will also be like that lamb who will lay down his life and his blood will be shed. And he will be the perfect true king like no other king in Israel's history. And Jesus is learning and he's asking questions and he's quizzing these scribes and teachers. And you know what's happening in his head? He's starting to put the pieces together and go, I am that lamb. I am that king. And my father is the creator of heaven and earth. And he learned it in that moment. And then his parents showed up and they said, where were you? And he said, I was in my father's house. Amazing. Amazing. I was so disappointed this year to hear that a really influential pastor from the East Coast got up in front of his church and preached a sermon where he essentially said to his church, it's time for Christians to cut ourselves off from the Old Testament. He got up, he preached a whole sermon, and then he turned around and he wrote a book. And in the book, he basically made the case that the Old Testament is archaic and outmoded, and it has nothing to do with New Testament Christianity. And the very best thing that we could do as Christians is, is sever ourselves from the Old Testament. And when I heard that, my heart broke because Jesus of Nazareth discovered who he really was by studying the Old Testament. Amen? Amen. And Joseph and Mary found him there, coming to an understanding of who he really is. Now look at verse 47, because the story is really interesting. What happens in verse 47 is that Luke says, people were blown away by this kid, though. So he was learning, but also... This kid was something special, right? All who heard him were amazed at his understanding. I bet a crowd had started to gather, you know? And the reader knows that this is more than just some precocious kid. This is the son of God. And yet, being fully God, he's also fully human. He's fully God in the flesh. And he's also fully human. With a real human body. And that means that he experienced all of the things that come with it, all the things that you and I experienced. 
He was born. He cried. He felt hunger. He went through puberty. He sweated, which usually goes with going through puberty, right? He he knew what it was like to sweat. He bled. He died. And along the way, he learned. Just, wait a minute. What did you just say? The Son of God experienced what it's like to learn something. How in the world does that happen? I'm just going to pause for a minute just so you can try to wrap your head around that. (laughs) Okay? Luke is bringing us into the very center of the most profound mystery in the universe. We celebrate it every Christmas time, and every Christmas time, the mystery confounds us. And it's supposed to. Because when we get confounded, then we worship God because we realize, God, you're so not like us. Amen? We worship God with mystery. The deepest mystery in the gospel, in my view, is the mystery of how one person can be both fully human and fully God. It's the incarnation. And you, how does that work? Now, I'm going to stop for just a minute, and I'm going to take a little sidebar. And I'm going to, I'm going to note that at this point in a sermon, sometimes people might be inclined to tune out. It doesn't happen in our church as much. I'm so thankful for this, okay? <laughs> but it happens, okay? It happens out there at some other hypothetical church where you start to think, this is getting a little bit too deep for me, you know, and then we'll say to our spouse, elbow me when he starts talking about something that applies to my life again, Right? But I want to encourage you, okay? And here's what I want to say. The reason I don't want us to ever do that is because the Christian life is supposed to be a life where we slow down and take time to think deeply about really important things, complex things. That's what it means to be a Christian, is to go, I want to, I'm going to wrestle with this. And you know why? Because God's world is so intricate and complex and interesting and wonderful. And when Christians pause at times and say, well, I want to take a deep dive into this. This is really complex. It's so good for the church and it's so good for the world. Do you know what one of the biggest dangers in our world is right now? It is when people who have not stopped to think critically about complex things start making truth claims about those complex things. When simple-minded people start making claims about complex things, we've got problems, right? Using 144 characters to talk about something that is deeply complex, will always lead to trouble, right? 
whether you're talking about the meaning of the universe or the sanctity of life or human sexuality or anything, these are complex things. And so I want to encourage you. That's why at River West, when we get to something like this, we go, okay, and we should be excited to do it because it'll, it'll take us into the presence of the living God where we can worship him, right? And so we stop and we say, let's think about this. And let me also say something about what God is doing is something in our church where he's reviving us. And that reviving is not just a heart thing. It's a, it's a head thing. So he says, take the deep dive. Let's, let's think about this a little bit. So that's what I want to do this morning with you for just a few moments. I want to talk about the incarnation. Here's what the incarnation means. I'm going to put a couple screens up. Here's screen number one. The incarnation is the Christian doctrine that says, it describes two complete natures united in one person. The word incarnation has in it the word flesh, carne. So it means God in the flesh. That's what that word means. And Christians, we believe that the incarnation means you have two complete natures united in one person. The other word, this is a big word, but I'm going to put it on the screen because we're going to think about complicated things. The other word I'm going to put up there is a word called hypostatic union. Okay. Yeah, there's a big word, right? Write it down. It's in the Bible. That word hypostatic is in the Bible. Don't be intimidated by it. It's a simple word. The word simply means essence or nature. It shows up in Hebrews 1.3. And so the hypostatic union is another way of describing the incarnation. What it means is it's this mysterious joining of the divine and the human natures in the one person of Jesus. And there's a union of natures. That's the hypostatic union. Jesus of Nazareth was the God-man. He was fully God and fully man. He was fully the son of Joseph and Mary as a human being. And he was fully the son of the living God. And where that gets deep and where that gets somewhat profound is that when you begin to think about the fact that to be fully God and fully human in one person means that you're going to bring together some attributes of those two natures that actually don't fit together very easily. So for example, one of the natures, one of the essential attributes of God is that God is immortal. But Jesus died. One of the attributes of God is that God is omnipresent. He's everywhere at all times. But Jesus experienced being limited in one body in space and time. One of the attributes of God is that he's all-knowing. He's omniscient. But Jesus, in order to save human beings from sin, experienced what it was like to have to learn. And you go, how does that work? It's a mystery. How does that go together? Is it just pure contradiction? No. 
God's beyond us. Is it a mystery we can never figure out? No. In fact, the book of Philippians gives us a little bit of hint of how it happens. Will you turn there with me? Philippians chapter 2. Keep your finger in Luke 2 and go to Philippians 2. It's a famous hymn that you'll recognize. Now remember, we're, we're, we're taking a deep dive into complex things because we, we love God. We want to understand who Jesus is, right? I didn't get, that was not very enthusiastic. Amen, right? We want to take a deep dive. Yes, thank you. Deep diving. Philippians 2, verse 5. How does an eternal God squeeze himself into frail humanity? Philippians 2 has a little hint. Here's what it says. Philippians 2, verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. Just note those words. I'll come back to that in a minute. He emptied himself. It's the Greek word kenosis. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Paul says, here's, here's a clue. The second person of the Trinity, the eternal son, the Lagos, who was with God, was God in eternity past, equal with God in every way, humbled himself, and Paul even uses the phrase, he emptied himself by taking on the form of man. It does not mean that when Paul says that he emptied himself, Paul's not saying that he, he shed any part of his divinity. He didn't cease to be fully God in any way, but in order to take on human nature, he humbled himself and he added something. He added the attributes of humanity to his divinity. So when Paul says he emptied himself, Paul's not saying that he emptied himself of divinity. He's saying he emptied himself by humbling himself and adding to his self human form, human nature, full humanity. And in the process of doing that, in the process of that humility, it means that Jesus of Nazareth, who is fully God and fully human, temporarily of his own accord, allowed himself to not experience certain aspects of his divinity, like being omnipresent, in order to experience humanity where he lived in one body. And of his own accord, he allowed himself to experience what it was like to learn. And of his own accord, he allowed himself to experience what it was like to die, to suffer, and to bleed. It's so profound. The analogy that I use, that I've heard is really helpful is, imagine if Usain Bolt, all right, we just went from the divine to the absolute ridiculous. But anyway, imagine that Usain Bolt decides, I want to, be a part of a charity where I, enter, uh, where I do a three-legged race with children. 
like the greatest sprinter of all time, right? Okay. And he goes, I want to, because I, because I really want to do something good, I'm going to enter into this three-legged race. And Usain Bolt allows himself to be tied to a five-year-old child. And they have a race, right? The question is, is Usain Bolt still the greatest sprinter of all time? Absolutely. Does he still have all the power and speed and, and other things? Absolutely. Is he temporarily experiencing a little bit of humility for the sake of something good? Absolutely. And you say, why does this matter? Well, it's absolutely critical for your Christian faith because who, who was it who hung on the cross for human sin? Was it merely a human being? Because if it was merely just a human being, then there's nothing divine. There's nothing powerful about the death. The death of Christ is powerful for salvation because this is the creator and sustainer of life, life himself who allows himself to die in love to pay the price for human sin. Jesus had to be God in order for his cross work to have power. But if he was not a real human, then he cannot be a substitute for human sin. And so you begin to realize it had to be a God man hanging on a cross for sins to be paid for. Amen? It's deep. It's profound. Sin broke a relationship between God and man. And Jesus reconciled that relationship by becoming the God-man. And along the way, he experienced humanity. He knows what you're going through. Luke says, let me tell you this story about 12-year-old Jesus because I want to remind you that you can relate to him. He knows what you're going through in your life. You can build your life around Jesus Christ because he knows what it's like to live life in this world as a human being who is also fully God. And so Luke says, look at his example. Follow him, imitate him. Okay, so what I want to do is give you three things you can do today. This is practical. Write these down. Take them home. Three things you can do in light of everything we've just seen, everything Luke's shown us about Jesus. These are so simple, okay? Very concrete. You could do all of them this week, and I hope you will. Here's number one. Learn something new about your Christian faith. Learn something new. Remember, Jesus knows what it was like to learn something. He says, I know what that's like. You can do it too. Maybe you're intimidated by a concept. Maybe you're intimidated by the incarnation. It's the Christmas season. It's Christmas. Learn something new. Learn something about the incarnation. Do a deep dive. You know what it is for you. You know that thing you've wrestled with, struggled with. I get emails all the time, and I love it, from people in the church. I don't understand this. You said this. Help me understand it. Those are, I want to get those emails, and so does every other pastor on the staff. We want to help you learn and grow and love the intellectual elements of your Christian faith. Learn something new, okay? Here's number two. Practice obedience in your life, even if it means letting down people you love. 
Because you know what? Jesus knows what that is like as well. He does. Jesus understands. You know you're in that situation where you got to make a decision between the right thing to do if you want to follow Jesus and the wrong thing to do. And you know that if you choose to do the right thing, you're going to disappoint people that you care about. Jesus knew what that felt like. I guarantee you that at the moment when Joseph and Mary walked into the temple and they said, what have you done to us? Jesus, where have you been? And he was preparing to sit, to look at Joseph and say, I'm in my father's house. He knew I am about to inflict a heart wound on someone that I love. And then Jesus says, I know that's hard. I know it's difficult to go against the stream in this world. I know you've got relationships with people who want to pressure you to go one way and God is saying, no, I need you to go the other. And Jesus says, you can do this. Practice obedience. Follow me. Trust me. And then number three, expect Jesus to do the unexpected. Expect him to do the unexpected in your life. Expect it this Christmas, okay? The reason that Mary and Joseph were so caught off guard is because they weren't expecting Jesus to start acting like God. They, they only saw Jesus as their son, their human son. So they were not expecting him to start doing things that he would need to do in order to accomplish his mission. This is why... They were so caught off guard and so disoriented. He had done something unexpected. This is why they took off without him on their own agenda, on their own mission, and only to realize Jesus is no longer with me. Has that ever happened to you? You're on, you're on your mission, you're doing your thing, and then suddenly you, you, you come to your senses and you realize, I'm out of... I'm way out ahead. I'm way off base. I'm, I'm no longer with Jesus in my life. And that's because Jesus is divine. He has a mission. He has a purpose for your life. He is sovereign and good, and he has an agenda. And the purpose of your life is to align yourself with his agenda, not the other way around. And along the way, he's going to do unexpected things, things that will take your breath away things that will surprise you, things that will bring you great joy. River West, can I, can I ask you to do something this Christmas? I want you to expect Jesus to do something unexpected. In a relationship that you've been praying for and agonizing over, I want you to expect that something unexpected will happen. About eight Sundays ago, I asked you to make a list of names of people that I wanted you to begin praying for, that God would allow you to bring them to church to get exposed to Jesus. I want you to pull out that list. No, right now. No, you don't even have it, do you? You didn't bring it. I want you to bring that list back. And I want you to start praying again. And I want you to expect Jesus to do something unexpected.
What if on Christmas Eve, one of the people from that list was sitting next to you in worship? Jesus wants to do that. Expect it. This morning, that may happen for you as we come to the table. Maybe when you came in this morning, you actually didn't, were expecting, you were expecting to not take communion for some reason. Maybe you came in expecting to not take communion because you're not sure that you are totally in with Jesus. And maybe in an unexpected way, Jesus has actually been pulling on your heart this morning and you're realizing, I'm going to take communion today. That is such a cause of rejoicing. Lean in with joy. Jesus is doing unexpected things all the time and he's probably doing it right now in human hearts in this place. Come forward believing Jesus is, he's, he's, he's taken my breath away today. Maybe you came in and, and the fire of your Christian faith was almost snuffed out. And in an unexpected way, Jesus has ignited you. Come to the table with joy and celebrate, right? And let's look for what God's going to do in our church and in our world. Amen? Amen. I'm going to pray about that, and the worship team is going to come. Will you bow your heads with me, and let's pray. It is a joy, Lord, to open the scriptures, to take this deep dive to see Christ, to chew on the mystery of Jesus of Nazareth, fully God, fully man. Oh, God, what a mystery. It takes our breath away and it makes us want to worship and praise you and acknowledge how finite and small that we are in your presence. We want to sing your praises and we want to follow Jesus. We want to continue on this journey with Luke to see where, where is Jesus going next? What is he going to do? What is he going to say? How is he going to teach? How is he going to lead? We want to know, Lord, because we want to be like him. And along the way, we pray, Lord, that Jesus would give us courage to keep learning, to keep obeying, and to keep expecting unexpected things. And it's in Jesus' name we pray this. Everyone said, amen.